Pastor Dave last week, when uh, uh, he was speaking, as, uh, as is the case with me each week, this is the final slide of his sermon last week, uh, always makes me think. There's, there's never a Sunday I walk out of here when Pastor Dave has spoken uh, that he hasn't spoken in my heart in some area, and I've got to go home and, and read a little more on it. And uh, when Pastor uh, David asked me to speak a few weeks ago, I had been thinking of uh, some things, and then last week when he was talking about the fifth point, about how God has adopted us, um, that started tying in with what uh, I had been thinking about, and it was just cemented this morning when uh, Pastor Ralph uh, got up here and uh, spoke from John 1, uh, this wonderful subject of, of being uh, sons of God. And John immediately wants to make a distinction when uh, he writes this first chapter of this great gospel. Uh, he points out that there's a distinction between being a son of God and the son of God. And he says, as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's us. And it says, and right after that, he says, and a word was made flesh, dwelt among us, we've seen his glory as of the only son from the Father, the only son, the begotten son, the unique, special, one-of-a-kind son. And this is where uh, my thoughts have been uh, this past week as I uh, was putting some thoughts together. I want to thank uh, Joanna uh, for contacting me early in the week when my message wasn't done <laughs> and asking me if I had an outline. And uh, at that time, I was in the pig pen uh, with a pouting son and uh, thinking of how we can uh, uh, be obedient obedient to the Lord uh, as a result of the lessons in uh, Luke 15. Charles Dickens, uh, who himself was a believer, said that the chronicle of the prodigal son is the greatest short story ever written. I love uh, Luke 15. It's my uh, favorite chapter in the Bible. I love the first few verses where Jesus receives uh, criticism for um, interacting with the wrong kind of people. I've had people say that to me uh, at the rescue mission. Uh, Ron, why are you just throwing your life away uh, on, on working with those people? I, I've had that said to me uh, uh, on a few occasions. And the first uh, uh, verse there that's up on the slide talks about the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. I believe that was the bottom of the rung men and women of that culture. You couldn't go any lower in that culture than to be a tax collector for the Romans while you were still a Jew. You were, you were a traitor. And the sinners, I believe, were the women that uh, uh, very often Jesus engaged with uh, publicly, who were the, were the prostitutes, the sinners. And so what this verse tells me immediately is the worst kind of people were, were attracted to Jesus and felt like they could come and interact with him. And then the second verse says, the Pharisees and the teachers... Well, you know, those were uh, two components of the religious leadership uh, of that time. Ultimately, these are the people who put our Lord to death. And, and partially for reasons like this. He didn't do what, Jesus didn't do what they liked. He, he hung out with the wrong kind of people. And he said here, the complaint is, this man welcomes sinners I believe the King James says, this man is a friend of sinners. 
The word uh, sinners uh, in the Greek is the word that talks about notorious sinners. Notorious sinners. Maybe an equivalent in our day and age today would be ISIS. You know somebody in ISIS. Those are the people he's hanging out with. And he he eats with them, which was, of course, uh, uh, socially uh, unacceptable. And in response to that, in response to the accusation that Jesus is a friend of sinners and hanging out with the wrong kind of people, he tells them this wonderful story. Luke 15, as a result of that that complaint uh, against Jesus. Well, immediately we could stop right there and we could all say, I'm glad Jesus is a friend of sinners. (laughs) I am. I'm glad Jesus is a friend of sinners because that means he's my friend. That means he's your friend. And at the core of this great story, as I was thinking about this this week, there's so much rich stuff uh, in these three stories which make up this parable. Really, the, the bottom line of Luke 15 is, how do we respond when people are brought into a relationship with God the Father? That's what it's about. How do we respond to lost things? being found? What do we think of something being lost or separated from the Father? How do we react when when they're found? And first Jesus talks about uh, the lost sheep. And you know the story. Um, What if a man has a hundred sheep? What does he do? He goes off, searches for it. This is two or three chapters of a book. <laughs> I'm not going to squeeze this in in one or two minutes in a, in a message. There's a lot that could be said about this lost sheep. But it's lost. And in this story, what does the owner do? He leaves the others and goes off and looks for it. Sometimes a shepherd would have a sheep go over the cliff and land on a ledge, and he'd try to get the sheep up up the ledge with the, the hook on its stick. Well, a sheep would fight him every inch of the way. He doesn't want to get pulled up on a stick on a cliff. So what does the good shepherd do? He waits till it's half dead from thirst and starvation, and then he can go and pick it up because it's weak and it won't fight him. And he throws it over his shoulder, and he takes it home and he nurses it. When I think of uh, the lost sheep, I, I think of people that really don't even have a clue that they're lost. You know, sheep need a shepherd. They, they need to be led. They're very skittish and um, shy in some regard. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, uh, we had an Italian immigrant in our neighborhood. His name was Tony Maida. And Tony had a couple of sheep. And for fun, we would go down as kids when Tony wasn't around, who would fire birdshot at us if he saw us. <laughs> We'd chase his sheep around the field. We thought it was great fun. Sheep didn't like it. <laughs> but they were just kind of ambivalent. You know, when a, I heard that when a wolf, I, I don't know, I'm not a veterinarian. We have veterinarians here. They'll confirm what I say. Um, I heard that when a sheep is confronted by a wolf, what do they do? They, they, they lay on their back and spread their paws, you know. Here, here have my stomach, take it. <laughs> um, and there, there, are, there are people like that. I've seen people like that over the years. You've seen people like that. They're just going through life clueless. Just clueless. And not only do you have to deliberately interact with them, you have to sometimes make them see that they're that way and it's hard for them to accept. Lost sheep, one in a hundred, the good shepherd goes out and finds it and 
brings it back. Then there's the, the lost coin. And that's one in ten. And this is a woman. And this is uh, that equivalent of an engagement ring. In that culture, be a necklace or a bracelet. And depending on how much money your husband get, had, he, he would get you five coins or ten coins. And it was a serious matter if you lost one of those coins. Any of you women ever lost your engagement ring down the garbage disposal? Yeah, similar situation. The woman is going to look for that ring. She's going to look for that coin. And here's a, a mud hut with a dirt floor. And you've got a little oil lamp that you can look with and get around in in the dark. And she's down on her hands and knees in this dirt floor looking for this, this lost coin because it has value to her. And when she finds it, what does she do? She rejoices. She rejoices. Matter of fact, the scripture says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. What, what does that mean? You know, the Jews had such a high regard for the Word of God that in the Gospels, they really wrote it as little as they could. In the Old Testament, when, when the Scriptures were copied and rewritten, the writers took a, shot, took a bath. When they got to the name God, they would cleanse themselves, switch pens, write the name of God, and cleanse themselves again. And when it says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, who's near the angels of God? God. God. And this is a way of saying when, when, when that one sinner repents, God is happy. God is happy. Do you know that's the only place in the New Testament where we see God is rejoicing other than the revelation one day when the work is all consummated. That's what makes God happy. That's what makes him rejoice is when we have sinners, that which was lost or separated, found. And I think of this coin in that, that dirt floor uh, environment and the circumstances. I have people come uh, to where I work each day. And there are people who are like me. I never heard the gospel until I was 23. And they grew up in rough neighborhoods, and they drew, grew up in, in uh, drug neighborhoods, and they grew up in single-family uh, households where, where the parents never worked, and, and if there was a mom involved, she, she was working generally, and the kid was on his own. And they grew up in these horrific environments, and I'm telling you, yes, they're born, we're born sinners. Yes, we're born with a fallen nature. But these folks have been impacted by their circumstances. I had one, one guy come to me one time. His name was Kenny. And Kenny just got out of prison. I think I might have told you his story before. Kenny got out of prison, 14 years in prison. Very angry. Little guy. Not a big guy, little guy. Very angry. And after months and months and months of, of uh, interacting with Kenny, who's on parole, and trying to peel back layers with counselors and Christian counselors, we find out Kenny was sexually molested since he was three by his father. And when he became a, an adult, he hurt someone because he was angry. Cir circumstances affect people. And this coin was, was affected by its, its circumstances. And then we see this, this lost son. And now we're dealing with something different. We're not talking about a sheep or the nature, or a coin, and, and the circumstances. We're talking about a boy 
and choices he makes. And his older brother makes some choices as well. And you, you know the story. It says there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Could you imagine a kid coming into you and saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. I want what's coming to me now. Imagine how you would feel. And, and, but what does the father do? He says he divided his property between them. The younger boy would have gotten half of what the oldest boy got in this culture. But what this boy was saying to his father was, Dad, you're as good as dead to me, so give me what I got coming. No relationship. And it says not long after that, he got together everything he had. Why did he get together everything he had? He wasn't coming back. <laughs> I'm not coming back here. And it says he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And he, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. You know, there's need in Ferndale. There's need in Bellingham. When people decide mom and dad's place isn't so hot and they go off and try to do their own thing, guess what? Famine sets in. <laughs> and sometimes when you're out there, like this young boy is going to end up feeding the pigs. Sometimes after you've fed the pigs a while, mama doesn't look too bad. <laughs> Papa doesn't look too bad. <laughs> Things are pretty good back there. Oh, and we see this all the time. We see this all the time. And, and our government, you know, recently, for legal purposes, changed the age limit for an adult from 18 to 26. You know, if your kids are single, you've got to cover their health care until they're 26 now. And you hear about the big homeless problem in Bellingham now with youth, there's so many homeless youth. Well, I was married with two kids when I was the age of some of those youth. <laughs> they don't have to go back. They don't have to think about their circumstances. Sometimes today we'll just prop you up. We'll just keep propping you up. It says it began to be in need. And what did he do? He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Can I have a parenthesis here with you young people? Listen, listen to Ron. I'm getting old. I've gotten to a point to where I, I got something to share to you, with you. Learn a trade. Learn a trade. Even Jesus was a carpenter. Learn a trade. This boy grew up with a rich dad. He never learned to do anything except sit around and boss people. <laughs> and when he got out there, he didn't have a trade. And you know what happens when you end up and you don't have a trade? You end up working for somebody who's willing to hire you and sometimes that doesn't work out real well if you've been in need. And this fellow needed someone to feed his pigs, which was not a great job for a Jewish boy. I don't imagine those pigs were kosher. <laughs> and he said he would watch these pigs eat. Here he'd grown up on a a kosher diet, and he's watching what he eat, what they're eating, and he goes, man, there are times, he goes, I just wanted to eat what they were eating. But he couldn't, couldn't because it had been uh, contaminated by these pigs. But no one gave him anything. Anything. You know the anything in your Bibles 
in italics. It's not there in the original Greek. The Greek says, no one gave him. That's it. Leave mama's house. Leave papa's house. Go out and do your own thing. Drop out of school. And you know what? No one will give you anything. This boy found himself in pretty rough shape. But scripture says he came to his senses. I love the fact, I love this verse here, by the way, in mission work. I love this verse. Uh, my liberal friends will say, well, the good Samaritan come by with the donkey and picked him up <laughs> and took him to the hotel and paid for a stay. No. That was, that was the guy who was a victim of a crime. This kid suffered. And it says he came to his senses. I think in this instance it was his pride. And he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am. I'm starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your what? Hired men. If I can just get a job from my dad. I've thrown away my inheritance. I've spent it. I told him I didn't want anything to do with him. Just give me a job. Let me live down there in the, in the apartments with the help, the hired help. Just give me a job and I'll be better off. So he got up and he went to his father. And you'll notice with this, with this boy, an attitude, an attitude of contrition led to the act of going back. Don't let anybody ever tell you our attitudes aren't important. Because our attitudes always lead to acts. We've had young guys come to the mission. They just got out of jail. And I say, what, I say, what happened? Joe, what, what happened? Why were you in jail? I got caught. <laughs> no, wrong attitude. Wrong attitude of stealing is wrong. And that's what we're trying to do down there, is change their attitude. Because there's a big difference between I got caught and I sinned. So he gets up. He says he's going to his father. And there's so much cultural interaction here. We, we just barely can scratch the surface. But in this verse here it says, but while he was still along way off his father saw him you know I saw him he, he was looking for him he was looking for him and he was filled with compassion that's the verb in, in the scripture where it says when Jesus was filled with compassion he wept it's that kind of compassion and, and he ran to his son this man was a nobleman, a nobleman. He had servants and family and wealth. He didn't run, okay? It was beneath him. But he sees his son and he runs to him. And imagine this boy coming back, his clothes are a mess, his teeth are falling out, he's filthy, he smells the rumors in the village of all the sins he he committed, and what does his father do? He runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kissed him. And the tense there in the Greek is he kissed him and 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 kissed him some more. And, and the boy says, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, how, how would we respond in a situation like that where our kid comes home? I, I work occasionally with parents who have children have drug issues. They burn so many bridges <laughs> and it's hard to trust. Pat and I have someone very close to us who's bipolar. 
and we've had our heart ripped out many times and they've gotten off medication. How, how do we respond when they say, I've sinned, I'm sorry. I like, I like this verse here, verse 22. You see the but? But the father said to his servants. You know, you know the father does not even acknowledge, does not even acknowledge the confession of the son. You know when that boy was forgiven? I believe he was forgiven when he took the first step back. He, he was forgiven on the road when his father saw him. That's the forgiveness of the father towards us. He knows our heart. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans 2.4 that repentance is a gift of God. The, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And he knows when we've repented. He doesn't even acknowledge it. That boy is forgiven. Completely. Completely. You know how God forgives? Like it never happened. As far as the east is from the west, so shall I cast your sins from me. The, the psalmist says, that's forgiveness. God not only forgives, he forgets. Sometimes we don't grasp that. Maybe you're wrestling with a little guilt. I wrestle with guilt. And I forget that my, forgot, my father has forgiven me. I said, Lord, you know that thing I did here 20 years ago? God says, what thing? <laughs> what thing? I don't remember that. And what does he say here? Quick, bring the best robe. You know whose robe that was? That was the father's robe when there was an official function and he had to preside or sometimes he would hold court or be at a festive occasion or a legal matter, the father would wear that robe. That was a symbol of his authority. He says, put it on him. And what is he telling all the people there? When you see him, you see me. This is my boy. He's forgiven. Put a ring on him. Remember last week, Pastor Dave talked about the, the ring, the signet ring, where you'd stamp the wax on official documents. This is this ring. This fallen boy who comes crawling home, he's got the robe and the ring. Give him sandals. Only slaves went barefoot. My, my boy's not going, going barefoot. This is my son. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And folks would keep a, a calf separate. And they'd feed it and feed it and feed it every day. And if there was ever a super special occasion, they would slaughter that calf. They called it the fatted calf because you want to fatten it up for when you celebrated. You could keep celebrating. And this son of mine was dead. Dead. In the Old Testament, if you had a son who was a rebellious son and he left the family, what could the father do? He could have him stoned. He could have him stoned. Now, there's no record of any father in the Old Testament doing that, but that was the law. And when this boy left... John MacArthur says they had a funeral for him. He was in rebellion. He left. They had a funeral for him. He was as good as dead. The day he left, they did the funeral. He says he was dead. Do we, do we grasp that? I mean, the funeral, the whole thing. But he's alive again. He was lost. He was found. And it says they began... Uh, to celebrate. And we see the older son here. 
he gets wind of this party and he says he won't, he's not going in. I know I skipped the verse here, but we'll get back to it. But the, the older brother became angry and he wouldn't go into the party. He says he was out in the field. He was out in the field. And he answers the father. You notice here he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me anything. You, you, you. And when this other bum comes back, you kill the calf for him. You get the picture? It doesn't call him father. Talks about this son of yours. Not, not my brother. This son of yours. No respect for his father. You know, it's a hard thing to be a son and to have a good father and not know what he's all about, know his heart. I want to look at a, a few responses here shortly, briefly. How do we respond to things coming home, coming home to God? First response was like with the sheep. First response, rejoice, rejoice. Second response with the, the coin or the peace. Rejoice, rejoice, God rejoices. And then we see the response of the, the older brother. He's angry and he, he won't go in. And I love, the, I love the father's response to him. This fourth response is the father. <clears throat> it was right that we should make merry and be glad. That caught me. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. My son, your brother, but my son was dead and is alive again, and he's lost and he's found. God's response, his father here, is, is a symbol of, of God the Father. Some people believe it's the Lord Jesus, even. What's, it, it doesn't matter. Whether it was God the Father or God the Son, what matters is it was right. It was right. And what, what is our response? What is our response? I've been leading a Bible study down at the mission for about three months now with about eight homeless guys. And it's been great for me. <laughs> I totally enjoyed it. They picked the subject and everything. And I just facilitate the class with them. That's been great. And one of the quotes we encountered in the midst of this study was this quote from C.S. Lewis. There are no ordinary people. There's no one ordinary in here today. There's no one ordinary out there. We never talk to mere mortals. And why is that? Why are there no ordinary people? Why are there no people we can lift our nose up and, and ignore? Why do we send missionaries to South America? Why do we work in the inner city? seeing things some days that just make you sick to your stomach. Well, we, we do that because the, word, the Greek word is imago dei, the image of God. 
Lewis is pointing out a very, very important theological truth there is all people are created in the image of God. Even those who are lost and they've died spiritually and we're all dead spiritually still have aspects that remain of God's image in us. And this ought to have a a profound effect on us, how we, we, we look at other people, relate to people, treat people. I was thinking, as I was thinking of this this week, you know, people are created in the image of God, and we see how some fallen folks respond to other fallen folks, or Christians might respond to, uh, to, to people they differ with, but there's no place for uh, discrimination, and it's thinking of some things here. Racism, it's a sin. Racism is a sin. And it bothers me that 100 years later, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States was formed when the Southern Baptists split over slavery. The Southern Baptist churches were going to continue to recognize slavery during the Civil War. That was racism. Christians can buy into this. South America or South Africa. You know, some of our best friends in this area are Dutch. Dutch. Some of our best supporters are Dutch. But what went on culturally in South Africa for years, the apartheid. What was South Africa? It was Dutch. And that, that's a sin. What went on there, that apartheid was a sin. Gender. For me to discriminate against someone because there's a woman is sin. Now, are there differences between men and women? After three daughters, I figured that out. <laughs> but if I expect a woman to do the same thing as a man for less money, that's a sin. Amen? Or classism. I'm not going to associate with this person because I make more or less money than them or where they're from, their origin, or their age. This is going on today. Age is a huge thing in our culture with our, the younger f- folks out there. They need jobs, and old guys like me won't retire. <laughs> you say, you're old. Yeah, I am old. Get over it. <laughs> and all people, inherent in all people is their dignity and worth. All people have inherent dignity and worth. We're spiritual beings. Unsaved people are spiritual beings. They're going to live forever. Unsaved people are going to live forever. What they need to be is get spiritual life. But they're going to live forever. They lost that spiritual life in the fall. But we're spiritual beings. You know, only, only humans can relate to God in worship and communication. It's one of the things that makes us created in the image of God. I love animals. My wife loves animals. Uh, she'd love for me to go out and buy her a Yorkie tomorrow. But animals cannot worship or communicate with God. And because we're spiritual, created in the image of God, God made us immortal. We're personal. We're, we're personal. And essentially there I want to point out that we have a, a purpose. Because we're personal beings... No two one of us are alike. That's how God made us. Like snowflakes, no two are alike. We have purpose. Each life, 
each life has significance before God. We're moral beings, which means we, we have a conscience. And God is holy, and he's placed within us that sense of the difference between right and wrong. And we're relational beings. And this was an important one. As, as I was thinking about this, I, I want to have on my grave a friend of sinners. My, my wife wants to put on it, did not play well with others. <laughs> She's probably going to have the last word, too. But you know, it's important. Here we are in a church, and we've all been created in the image of God, and we're, we're to be relational. You know, God said, let us make man in our image. There's relationship in the Trinity, between the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's a relationship there. There's ability to work together. And, and as a church, with people created in the image of God, in order to do God's work, we have to work together. Amen? We're not made to, to be isolationists. And in marriage, we have to be relational. In the church, we need to be relational. We need to be relational to go out and interact with people who don't know Christ. What do you think, you just go out and drop these gospel bombs and, and people get saved? Well, it may happen on occasion. But most of the time, it's through interaction with people. I'm trying to hire a few chaplains right now at the mission. The people coming into us are so broken. They take so much time. We need people that can interact with them, not just give them a, a cot and a meal. And We need to spend time with them. And we're emotional. We're emotional people. And I like this because one of the emotions we feel is compassion. That's from the image of God. When this church says we want to send boxes to kids overseas. That's because God put that compassion uh, in, our, in our heart. When we want to go out and give cookies to our neighbors, that's from the Lord. We, we want to see them come to Christ. When people send some money down to the mission, that's that image of God and compassion saying, I want to do something. We're, we're emotional beings. And I love this. I got this from uh, J.I. Packer. He says, when we look at other people through the lens of being bearers of the image of God, it's impossible to close our hearts to them. When we see the poor and the suffering and the mar marginalized... Because we have the image of God, it's impossible for us to close our hearts. And he says, Jesus healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He delivered those held captive. And he was moved with compassion by the temporal needs. He saw that meeting those needs was a bridge to meet the greater need and bring people a salvation. Pray that God blesses our cookies and our toy boxes and our, our outreach because that compassion is a bridge to meeting a greater need. And gospel-driven ministries, and our ministries here through this church, ministries of mercy, they are viable, visual representations of the mercy of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we could go on and on with this image of God I tried to look at some of the practical implications of that. It was right that we should celebrate, because this my son, my son, created in my image, was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. It's right we should celebrate when people come to faith, because they were lost. They're going to spend eternity in hell. They don't have a relationship with the Father. If they aren't made alive. 
It's right. It's the right thing to do. And Packer, again, in the book Knowing God, I hope you've got a copy of it in your library. One of the, one of the great books written in our lifetime. He says, if you want to know how well a person really understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and God is his father. If this isn't what if this isn't the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers and our outlook on life, we don't understand Christianity very well. Christianity isn't just, well, I got saved. Christianity is now you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Pastor Dave hit on that last week, how God initiates their salvation. He brings us into the family. I'll take that one step farther. He's got an inheritance for you. Not only are you in the family based on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, but he's got an inheritance for you. A rich inheritance. And I love that quote from Packer. Father. Father is the Christian. In other places he said New Testament name for God. Jesus said when we pray, we should pray what? Our Father. Abba. The Hebrew word for daddy or Aramaic word for daddy. Intimate. Intimate. Why is it intimate? Because we're his sons. We're his children. And in Romans 8, he says, we are, Paul says here, we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we're what? Heirs. We're heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs. Pastor Ralph, you ever been able to get your arms around that one? Co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. He's the begotten son, but we're sons. Equal inheritance. Co-heirs. And then he says, you're, you're no longer a slave, which means you've been adopted into the family, but you're a son. And since you're a son, God has made you an heir. And our Father's wealth is an Im- immeasurable. And we're going to inherit the whole estate. <laughs> Glory. <laughs> then in, in Romans, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You've received the Spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is the same expression Jesus used. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. If children, heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There's that Abba father relationship, again, that the Christian has as being redeemed and justified. and He's being sanctified and, and being conformed to the image of Christ. And ultimately, he'll be glorified. Why? Because you're a son. That's why Jesus and the Lord want to make us like sons. Because you are a son. Positionally, you're sons. Let go on here. Get it? We're going to be we're sons. And we're being conformed to the image of God. And again, he brings it up in Galatians. There's a great Christmas verse, Galatians 4. About the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why? Why did Jesus come? So that we might receive the adoption. As sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Abba Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through Christ. Abba is the Christian name for God in the New Testament. As we close here, 
Maybe someone here is like that, that prodigal, and they've been a, a long way off from God, like that prodigal, and they realize they, they've never received Christ as their Savior. God, God wants you to be a son or a daughter. Or maybe you're that older boy, and you've been out in the field working for a long time. But you, you've been busy in the work of God, but you don't know the God of the work. You don't have the type of relationship with your father that you should. That's what God wants. God's not so interested in the work out there as he is in you. You know, it's easy for us to trust our works. I'm in church every Sunday. I get up every day and go to a rescue mission. I'm a pretty good guy. God owes me. I'm trusting my good works. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a pretty good guy. And we don't have that relationship with the Father that we should. We have deacons here and people willing to talk with you and pray with you after the service. If you'd like to talk with someone, God loves you. You're his children. He's got a wonderful inheritance for you. And there are children out there, in a generic sense, who don't have a relationship with their father, and their father wants them to come home as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this rich story, which is almost uh, so much to get in in such a short time, but we thank you for it. And Lord, as we leave today, help us to remember how you think of people who aren't in the house of God today. Help us, Father, to be relational and compassionate and reaching out to them. And Father, when they come, help us to rejoice because it's the right thing to do. In Christ's name, amen.